morning. Good morning. We'll go ahead and get started. I know uh, Tim's had us camped out here in Revelations for quite a while now. And uh, last week, he left us with a little bit of a cliffhanger. He said that uh, he was going to talk about what it means to be an overcomer. So today, we're going to start off just kind of digging into this whole overcomer piece. And we see in Scripture that talks about going through this fiery trial. So that's what we're going to talk about today is three things. What is this fiery trial going to look like? Why we must undergo a fiery trial? And finally, how do we better prepare ourselves for going through this fiery trial? So this, this idea that we're going to go through a fiery trial, you see this many times throughout Scripture. And uh, we're going to start with Revelations 20. So if you'll turn with me there, Revelations 20, verse 11 through 15. Revelations 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So as we've talked about in here a little bit, it's reasonable to believe based on Revelations 20 that Jesus could be this lake of fire. In verse 11 we see that Everything flees from his face that sits upon the throne. So everything flees from Jesus' face as he sits upon the throne. So it's reasonable to believe that the fire, that is what consumes death and Hades, it just may be that they can't exist in the presence of God when he looks at them. So Jesus may be the lake of fire. When we're judged, we're going to go through the same fiery trial. So the second place we're going to look is 1 Corinthians 3. We're going to see they talk about the lake of fiery trial again here, or the, the fiery trial. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 9 through 15. So verse 9, For we are all God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's worth of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which he has built on it, endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So the question is, when we're judged, what did you build on the foundation of Christ with? Did you build on the foundation of Christ with precious metals and stones, or with hay, sticks, and straw? What happens to precious metals and stones when they're exposed to fire? They're purified. They become awesome. They become beautiful. Better than before. But what happens to sticks, hay, or straw when they're exposed to fire? They turn to ash. There's nothing left. Well, all of this kind of reminds me of this great theological parable called the three little pigs. If you recall in that 
awesome parable. You have the first two pigs who procrastinate, and they don't really get into building their houses very well. And one builds out of sticks, the other out of straw. And the third little pig is very diligent, intentional about his life, and he builds his house from stone. And of course, when the big bad wolf comes up and they're exposed to the fiery trial of the wolf, we all know what happens. The first two houses get blown away, and the third stands. The third pig's home was built of stone and withstood the fiery trial. So which pig will you be? Maybe not a great way to frame that question. But when we're judged, there's going to be a fiery trial that's going to burn away all of the impurities within us. Those impurities can't exist in heaven. We're going to become perfect. They're going to be burned away. So will you show up for your fiery trial? And here's the picture, right? I'm going to show up for judgment. Am I going to be holding precious stones and gems and gold and silver? Or am I going to show up holding a twig and a bale of hay? That's what we're going to look like on Judgment Day. What's going to be burned away? What's going to be left? So we need to go through these fiery trials to help us come out pure on the other side. So let's look at some examples of how this might work here on earth. Let's look at some of the trials that we go through here. And I'm going to, I'm going to use an example from my personal life, my past life. So I have to start this off with a bit of a confession. I used to be an Army drill sergeant. And I got to put thousands of young people through a form of a fiery trial here on earth. Just like on our judgment day, it was all for a purpose. There was a method and a reason for all of it. And just like there's a reason for all of us, all of our earthly trials, there was a reason for what we did there. So this is kind of what it looks like to go through basic training. The first day of Army basic training starts with a group of about 1,000 young people who vary in age from about 17 to 35. The average age is between 18 and 19 years old, coming together at the In Processing Center. They're from all different parts of the country. They have different religious backgrounds, fitness levels, races, income levels, and even different values. Yet they all find themselves in the same place on day one, scared to death. When the Greyhound bus carrying these young men pulls up to the reception station, and the drill sergeant climbs up the steps to greet them, he always says the same thing. You have 20 seconds to get off this bus, and 10 of them are already gone. Now, there's, there's usually some other colorful expletives added in there and whatnot, but the point is this, that they all inculcate this need and this motivation to get off the bus as quickly as humanly possible as they trip over each other to do as they're told. So this eclectic group of people spend the next 96 hours in this reception station being humbled. They spent their whole lives learning to be an individual, that they are unique and special. So they're given a fresh, shiny new haircut that wipes out that stylish haircut that made them separate from everyone else. And now they look just like everyone else around them. They're taught how to stand, how to walk, how to dress, and even how to talk like everyone else. So the forging process is starting to take effect right off the bat. They may still feel like they're a special individual inside, but on the outside, they look and act just like everyone else around them. They're taught the seven army values, how to move quickly from one point to another. Once they get to that point that they're hurrying to get to, they learn to wait. Hurry up and wait. The first 96 hours involve a lot of that hurry up and wait. It teaches a lot of patience. They wait for shots. They wait for meals we endearingly call chow. They wait for their shiny new haircut, and they wait in line to get their gear. They learn to run or march from one place to another and then wait some more. While they wait, they learn how to stand, how the army teaches them to stand, and they learn how to talk to their superiors with respect. So this transformation through this tough process is starting to take effect. 
After the first 96 hours, these new trainees in the Army are shipped to their first basic training unit. Just like day one of the reception station, when they get, out of their, uh, they get on this mode of transportation we call cattle cars. It's kind of like a semi-truck, the back end of which it looks like what you'd haul cattle in. And you pack them in there, about 80 people in that with all their gear, and they pull up to greet their first drill sergeant, who will be in charge of them for the next nine weeks. So the introduction starts with a lot of yelling, as you can imagine, making them dump all of their bags to search for contraband, and they get to do a lot of push-ups. They can't dump their bags fast enough, no matter what they do. That's intentional. And no matter how hard they try, they forget to address the drill sergeant as drill sergeant. They don't stand properly when addressing their drill sergeant. And they have three drill sergeants all yelling at them at one time. One of them is telling to do something contrary to another, and it's very confusing. There's always at least one other person that's with them at all times, all through basic training. They call this their battle buddy, the guy that they're going to learn to deal with and be with and trust and care for. They have no time alone. Everything is with another person. And on that first day of basic training, that battle buddy is assigned to them. They get a couple of briefings. They get to run around and run from one place to another or march. And as a drill sergeant, with all this yelling, you have to learn to yell from the diaphragm. If you start to yell from the throat, you lose your voice very quickly. So you can always tell the new drill sergeants from the guys who have been there for a while, as they'll be hoarse by the end of day one. There's three phases to basic training, red, white, and blue. And the new Army privates start out in red phase, which we call total control. The drill sergeants wake them up very kindly every morning. This usually looks like the bay lights getting thrown on and then a trash can being thrown down in between the bunks, in conjunction with a bunch of yelling, of course. They administer morning physical fitness, give them about 30 minutes to get everyone through the showers, changed into a formation, and even take them out to breakfast, which lasts about five minutes. If they talk or look around during this breakfast time, they're done eating. It's time for them to move out so someone else can sit down. We have things to do and there's never enough time to get them done. So everything is being pushed. They're being pushed to do things faster and faster than they've ever done them with a sense of urgency before in their lives. The drill sergeants march them everywhere. There's very little time for them to do anything on their own and all these people from all over the country find themselves to be no different than anyone else. Some may have had no values but now they find themselves with the army values. They learn to do exactly what they're told exactly what they're told and from a drill sergeant's perspective this can be kind of dangerous because they're going to do exactly what they're told you have to be careful of what you tell them to do as you can imagine the army likes things nice and neat and orderly so there's a lot of cleaning that goes on to keep everyone healthy to keep the germs out so this is going to require a lot of a lot of cleaning by all the privates so i remember telling the privates when they were new to the basic training unit, hey, make sure that you mop and sweep the floor. I came back about 30 minutes later and they had done exactly as I told them. There were streaks of dirt all through the floor. They mopped the floor, they let it dry, and then they swept it. They did exactly what they were told. Not too bright, but they did exactly what they're told. You can't be mad at them. So they're learning to do what they're told to do for the first time probably in most of their lives. So after this total control phase is over, a trainee chain of command is formally put in place. So the privates in basic training are now going to have someone in charge of them from inside their own group. They're still going to have a lot of drill sergeant supervision, but we loosen up the reins just a little bit, give them a little bit more freedom. This is the marksmanship phase that requires a lot more teaching, coaching, and mentoring from the drill sergeants, and a lot less yelling. This is what they call the white phase. They're given more freedom and in a few short weeks they've been indoctrinated to learn how to handle a firearm. They learn safety, maintenance, zeroing, and qualifying with a rifle. This is also a test of the drill sergeant's patience, as you can imagine, trying to teach 
someone who's never handled a firearm before, that they swing that muzzle every which direction when they're not supposed to. They find themselves with a little more free time, but not much. There's always a lot of practicing or training on something unless they're cleaning, eating, or sleeping. There's no time wasted, but they're still doing exactly as they're told to do. When you go to a, a firing range, there's a, a little wooden building, a little roof, and underneath it hangs what they call a lister bag. It's a canvas bag. This canvas bag has little spigots on it. You put water and ice in there, and they can come and fill their canteens from that bag. So if they need more water, they would just go fill their canteens. So we have a, a detail that goes out prior to the range beginning, and they would put water and ice in the bag for the trainees. It usually consists of the trainees that do this detail. So the water we ship out there in these five-gallon water cans and the blocks of ice are in bags. And I remember telling the trainees, hey, put, put the water and the ice in the lister bag. I came back a few minutes later and, well, the lister bag is kind of blocky. It looks kind of square. They had done exactly as I had told them to do. They picked up the five-gallon can and somehow managed to get the entire can filled with water into the lister bag. But that's not all they did. The ice was in there as well still in the bags. They had put it there to hold it, I guess. I don't know, but still not too bright, but doing exactly as they're told. The final phase, the last three weeks of basic training, is the blue phase. This is where soldiers learn most of the individual combat skills required to survive on the battlefield. They learn how to move under direct fire. They learn how to fire and maneuver. They learn to camouflage themselves and their equipment. They learn how to throw grenades and move as a member of a fire team. They learn what it's like to suck in a little bit of CS gas as well. Part of this phase, you take them out to the gas chamber. You have a protective mask to protect you against chemical warfare used by the enemy. And they have to learn confidence in that mask. They have to learn to put it on quickly. They've been trained to put their mask on quickly. And every time they hear the word gas, 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 they immediately go into that battle drill, that muscle memory drill of putting that mask on their face to protect them from inhaling the gas. So as soon as they show up, we put them in formation, and then we run by them with a the stick with CS attached to the end of it and gas them. Most of them don't get their mask on in time. It's kind of comical in a sad little way. And then we take them later into the gas chamber itself. So they'll come in in groups of 10 or 15, and it's kind of dark in there and it's kind of hazy in there, and they're scared to death because they have their mask on, and they're, they're sure they have that thing cinched down. They know it's not going to leak and probably cutting off circulation to their little brains. And as they stand in there around this canister with CS in it with the drill sergeants, they're told to take their masks off. They have to take their masks off, and you're going to make them recite their name, their rank, their serial number, probably something from the Soldier's Creed, and let them get a good lungful of CS. And then you let them out. They go running out the back door, coughing, and every pore on your body, you can feel the sting of the CS, snot running down your face, tears running down your face as every orifice on your body is now opened up and exposed to this gas. And you learn to have confidence in your equipment. You learn that your equipment works. But it's just one of those things you never forget, because it's actually kind of funny. All of this is a process. All of this is hard work. In nine short weeks, the Army takes kids from all walks of life with different value sets and abilities and turns them into a highly motivated, fast-moving, physically fit, lethal team ready to join their first duty station. They're confident, disciplined, and proud. More importantly is they're prepared to face a greater trial, a greater fiery trial should the need arise. They're prepared to face the fiery trial of combat. Inevitably, at the end of every basic training, there's a graduation, and I hear from the parents. And they'll often say, how did you do in nine weeks what I could not do in 18 years? How did you turn my son into a man in nine weeks? 
Well, to make that happen in nine or ten weeks requires them to go through this fiery trial. It's not easy. They had to suffer. They had to learn. They learned the hard way initially, and then they're built to learn on their own. They start to take on the army values, and they become something they weren't. Many of them had no values. I remember one of the privates from the Bronx, is, I remember this kid to this day, and this was you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. And he came in and he really latched on to the army values of loyalty, duty, selfless service, respect, honor, integrity, and personal courage. He grabbed onto these and made him his own. All these values he just now started to live up to, almost to the point of irritation. As they finished chow, they would finish eating, they have to come around, they have to jog with their battle buddy, and they come back into the training area. And as they're coming back in, there's some pull-up bars where they'll stop and they'll do pull-ups. And then they'll do some sit-ups and some push-ups. We have a set number for them, depending upon how far down the road they are that they should be able to accomplish. We'd come back in, and it's not supervised. We expect them to live with values and do what's right. We expect them to be disciplined, or what we'd call self-governed. And as they come back in, we'd start training again. And it would seem like every other day, Private Bone's hand would go up. Just totally off in left field, he would say, Joe Sarden, I cannot tell a lie. I didn't do my pull-ups today. I only did my push-ups. Oh, gosh. All right, go back and do your pull-ups. But this is, this is the kind of values that they start to get. They start to police themselves. Something he's never had before in his entire life, he found in basic training. He could not tell a lie. All of this fiery trial that those young men go through is for a reason. It burns away those demographic differences like income, privilege, and entitlement. It burns away the timidness and leaves confidence. It burns away the laziness and leaves work ethic. It burns away attitude and leaves discipline. It burns away chubby little bodies and leaves strong ones in their place. Most things we value are things we have to work for. Going through difficult trials to achieve something makes us appreciate them that much more. So as we experience these fiery trials, we can learn the importance of them. That which doesn't kill us makes us stronger kind of thing, right? These trials that we overcome make us stronger. When we overcome some difficult time or challenge, it gives us a new perspective, hopefully. It gives us a point of reference that we can endure. The next trial we have may not seem as bad because we now have a point of reference that we've been through something worse. So knowing this, why do we tend to avoid these challenges in our lives? Can we avoid these challenges? No, we can't. They're there, and there's a reason for them. So let's look at 1 Peter. 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing has happened to you. So Peter's telling us, hey, don't, don't worry about it. You're going to go through it. It's not a big deal. It's just something that is part of this life. Don't be concerned with it. It's part of the deal. You can't avoid it. So quit trying to avoid it. So how do we prepare for these fiery trials? How do we build on the foundation of Jesus Christ with gold and precious stones instead of straw and twigs? Will I be burned to ash for having built on the foundation of Christ with twigs and straw, or will I prove to be an overcomer? Being an overcomer means that we face difficulty and win. It means that we are a faithful witness, remember Martireo, and not fear death. We're to stay committed to Christ and pursue Him. And when the world, even when the world turns against us, we're supposed to do this. So how do we do this? Well, Ken showed it up here a couple weeks ago, the two circles, right? The circle on the left, and which has life, people, and circumstances on the outside, and the arrows all pointing towards me. The circle on the right, which is the circle of choice, 
who has me still in the center, but all the arrows are pointing towards life, people, and circumstances. Am I the pool ball on the pool table of life, or am I the cue ball? Am I proactive, or am I reactive? Am I a victim, or do I have choice? When things happen to us in our lives, and we find ourselves with the perspective of poor me, why me, we find ourselves in the left-hand circle, the victim circle. When we choose to say, this is happening to me for a reason, I can overcome, and I can learn something here. God's in control, and he has me here for a reason. I can choose. I can choose how I act based on my belief. A little historical perspective. In 1859, there was a young boy. He was born on the frontiers of Kentucky. That was the frontier back then, in 1809. And he had an older sister, mom and a dad. And at a very young age, his mother passed away. He was nine years old. His 11-year-old sister and his dad raised him. So he's off to a rough start. This boy taught himself how to read at age nine after his mother's death. Books weren't easy to come by, of course, in rural Kentucky on the farm. But he had one book, and he learned how to read. Shortly after his mother's death, they moved to Indiana. And they lived there for a few years. His dad had some poor business dealings, but their books were more available there. And he read some more. He became self-educated. And they found themselves living in Illinois when he was a teenager. Well, having been self-educated as one of the few people in the area that could read, he was doing well for himself. He got himself into a business relationship with the bartender, a guy who owned a tavern. So he became the bartender. He was a minority owner. He had saved some money, and he got into this tavern business. He was in there just a few short weeks before he recognized, this is not what I want to do with the rest of my life. So after a few short weeks of tending bar, he let his partner buy him out, and he got out of the tavern business. About three months later, he was called to court. His partner had defaulted on some debts. So he went to court, and the judge said, you're going to be held liable for a portion of your partner's debts. And of course, our hapless bartender was very upset. How can this be happening to me? Why me? This cannot be part of God's plan for him to punish me for getting into a business that I got out of. Judge, I was only a bartender for three weeks. I was a very minority owner, and I'm done with it. I haven't been there for months. And the judge said, too bad. You need to pay your, your portion of the debt. And this was a sizable thing. It would have been well over $100,000 in today's money. And that's everything he owned. They took his house, his horse, almost all of his clothes, all of his personal possessions. So he ends up borrowing a bunch of money from friends and getting most of his stuff back. But he learned his lesson. Never again will I find myself dealing with that guy who owned that tavern. What a terrible business relationship that was. He learned. And then six months later, he was called back to court. His old business partner had passed away. And the judge said, you are accountable for all of those debts. How can this be? How can God punish me like this? How can this be happening to me? Judge, this is not fair. And so he complains to the judge. He's in the victim circle right now. How can this be happening to me? And the judge just told him, look, if you don't want to find yourself in these situations, quit getting yourself into bad business deals and go study the law. So defeated, our hapless bartender walked out of the courtroom that day. But then he shifted into the circle of choice almost right away. He recognized, well, this is out of my control. What I can control is my attitude. I can control my actions. And he decided to study law. 
He passed the Illinois bar within two years. Found out he was a pretty good attorney. He was a good lawyer. He made some good money. He was started to get some political capital in the area to the point where he was elected to the Illinois House of Representatives and then elected as the President of the United States. You see, Abraham Lincoln, had he stayed a victim, history would have been very different. We wouldn't be where we are today, potentially. Instead, he decided to have the right attitude. He moved into the circle of choice. He chose to face the adversity, the fiery trial, and come out better on the other side. So when we face challenges in our life, we have that opportunity as well. Do I want to be a victim? Or do I choose to come out better, more perfected on the other side of my trial? Well, we see the greatest example of overcoming in Jesus Christ, of course. God sent his son here to earth to show us the way. He demonstrated what it should look like to overcome temptation of the flesh and live in the spirit. He showed us how to do life right. He showed us what it looks like to face giant obstacles, such as the trials that led to his crucifixion and still overcome them. So pursuing Christ means serving and loving others, despite what the worldly culture and system tell us. It is laying aside myself to serve others. It means knowing what my spiritual gifts are and leveraging those to serve and love others. How hard can it be to love someone who's unlikable? We're called to do it. Can we overcome the flesh and live in the spirit? And is it worth it? The answer is found in Revelations as a resounding yes. We know that it's worth it, that we're supposed to actually go through these fiery trials. And if we choose to believe that God is in control and I'm here for a reason, it's going to affect my attitude. And if my attitude is a good attitude, it's going to affect my actions. The fundamental decision life, Herman talks about this all the time, is do I believe that God is in control or I'm in control? Is God in control or is someone else in control? If I believe that God is in control when bad things happen that I feel are bad, that I can feel the victim about, do I choose to say, this is happening for a reason. Maybe I'm supposed to be learning something right now. Maybe I'm supposed to be learning patience. Maybe I'm supposed to be drawing closer to God. I'm supposed to overcome these trials to have learned something on the other side. That's going to influence my actions, and I'll have the proper actions to pursue Christ. But if I don't go with number one and believe that God is in control, I'm going to find myself a victim and not overcoming and learning from the trial that I should have. I'll be standing there at Judgment Day with an armful of sticks and a bale of hay instead of precious stones, gold, and silver to be purified. Any questions on anything we just covered or any comments? Yeah, sometimes we'll never know why we went through it, and other times we can look back in retrospect, and it's very clear. I'm closer to God than I ever was. Or look at all the patience I got to learn there. So we, we, do have, we always have choice. We always have choice. All right, let me close this out in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to show us how to do life right, to show us how to face our fiery trials on earth and learn to overcome them here, that they may strengthen us and give us a proper perspective to change our attitude and our actions and ultimately bring us closer to you. Also that we may be better prepared to stand before your throne on Judgment Day holding gold and precious stones. In your name we pray. Amen.